Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. You've got your regular hosts, Brian and Jeff. And hey, Brian, today's a special day, isn't it? Yeah, so hey, this is our 200th episode. And uh, so first and foremost, to all of you that have been listening, have joined us week to week as we consider principles from God's Word, thank you. We really appreciate it. In fact, Jeff, I'm blown away. You know, we have a service that we use where we post our podcasts, and it allows us to kind of see who's listening and where do they live, you know. And, and we have people that have listened from over 150 countries, and so kind of blows me away. But I think it, you know, really speaks to the power of the gospel, right, and how it resonates with people. And so all glory be to God in that respect. Well, and also just the, the marvels of modern technology that, you know, you and I, in the comfort of our homes, you know, can get together using this uh, capability, post the recording to our website, and anyone anywhere on the planet, you know, with uh, internet access, can listen to a podcast, can access our website, and uh, read our articles, etc. And, and I know there's a lot of, you know, garbage out there on the internet, but uh, certainly technology also can be used for uh, for good. Definitely can. In fact, to that point, you know, we have a lot of people that listen through a browser by like going to our website. We have a podcast link. That's great. But just so everybody knows, we also are on all of the major podcast networks. So like Spotify, Apple, Google's application, iHeartRadio, Amazon, all these different companies that have their own podcast players or audio players. We're on all of those. So if you just do a search on the title Bible Questions, you can find us on that as well. So anyhow, that can be handy if you want to just, you know, hey, it automatically downloads and it's just there whenever you want to listen. Uh, but once again, yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate you listening. Yeah, one other thing I might mention is if you do come to our website and click on the podcast button, that particular page has a topical index of all 200 podcasts, sort of arranged by a different subjects or, or different topics. And that may be of a convenience for our listeners as well. So, yeah, a very short, roughly four years ago, <laughs> start, one every week, and, and it just adds up. All right. So, today, we're going to do something just a little bit different. We're going to give you not questions that have been submitted to our website, but questions that have been submitted to Jesus I know that sounds a little bit odd, but as you go through the Gospels, you will find that people had a number of questions about, you know, scriptural things, etc., that they asked him. And so today we're going to focus on those questions and the uh, answers that uh, he gave. And of course, his answers are far more reliable is not the word I'm looking for. Authoritative. How about that? <laughs> yeah, authoritative. There you go. I like that better. Being deity, you know, he could certainly speak with all authority, you know, whereas our authority, if you will, has to be based on what the scriptures, you know, have to say. Uh, and it's also interesting if you look at the types of questions uh, that he was asked, you know, some were, I'll say, legitimate, you know, from people, you know, seeking the truth. Unfortunately, some were also meant to entrap or test him. So it's kind of a mixture of motivation, if you will. You know, some people sincere uh, and some people not so. 
And so, uh, Brian, any other introductory comments before we actually just get into it? Yeah, to that last point, I guess the good news is there's something that we can learn from those questions, regardless of the motive. And uh, so, yeah, look forward to seeing what Jesus had to say. Yeah, there you go. And so, in general, you know, Brian, I'll go back and forth. One of us will ask the other one the question. The other person will provide the answer. And not only the answer that Jesus gave, but also what lessons can we get from the question and the answer. So, Brian, looks like you get the first one, recorded in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And let me go ahead and read that for you. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? <laughs> there you go, Brian. Yeah, there's a good example of a question that had ulterior motives, we might say. Exactly. And the they there now are the Jews, because he was in the synagogue, as it mentioned. So it's, a, you know, the Jews asking him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 11 to give the answer. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. So just a, a wonderful, loving gift from the Lord to heal this man that had this hand that was withered. And so what are some lessons we can learn from it? Well, number one, as Jesus himself said, you know, it is always lawful to do good, even when it seemingly contradicts another command. Now, in this case, it was not a contradiction. You know, Jesus pointed out to the Jews themselves that, hey, you know for a fact that you wouldn't hesitate to save the life of one of your animals on the Sabbath, would you? Now, they couldn't deny that because they would certainly pull their animal out of a ditch. Yet, as was stated, they wanted to condemn Jesus for performing a good deed on the Sabbath. And it's interesting how envy, hatred can drive people in this case, to try and entrap him, but but he gave just a wonderful answer. In fact, James chapter 4 and verse 17 teaches us, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So let's say you had an animal that fell into a ditch, and you were like, well, it's the Sabbath, I can't work, I'm just going to let him die. Well, that would be a sin, right, according to James 4, because you should be doing good by saving the life of that animal. So anyhow, that's the number one lesson. Number two lesson I think we can get out of this is that when we know what is being taught is true, we need to receive it and we need to do it. We need to follow what the Bible teaches, or in this case, you know, Jesus was teaching. We should not let pride and envy cause us to sin. And I mention that because, obviously, the attitude of the Jews, certainly throughout Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth, is, you know, they became jealous. And in fact, even in this case, after verse 13, you can see how they responded in verse 14. It says, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. In fact, if you look in Luke's account of this same question and answer, Luke 6 verse 11, it says they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So it's just amazing how here's a, our wonderful Savior heals this man teaches them a very valuable lesson, but because of their own pride, they not only refused to acknowledge that, but they became angry. 
just really sad, and we see that in our world today. One final passage, and then I'll turn it over to you, Jeff, and that's in John chapter 15 and verse 22. I like this statement from Jesus. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So he's exactly right. Once he's given us the truth, we have to accept it, and we shouldn't let envy or pride or any other attitude, if you will, dissuade us from doing what's right. Jeff? I appreciate that. Well, and I also appreciate you the thing you said a few moments ago about seemingly contradicting another command. Uh, because, you know, to quote-unquote do good, well, is that just whatever we might think is good or what the scriptures would tell us is good? And, of course, the answer, obvious answer would be, well, what the scriptures tell us is good. And, you know, Brian, the only, thing I, the only reason why I mentioned that is some people might say, well, okay then, so... If I can, quote unquote, do good by lying, or if I can do good by stealing, or if I can do good by, you know, convincing some unhappy woman to leave her husband to marry me, well, then then that's okay, right? Right. <laughs> and, and Jesus is certainly not, not teaching that. What, what we might call situation ethics, you know, if we think it would be good, therefore it's okay. It's like, no, 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 he's, he's not teaching that either. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and, you know, there are some things that are, I would say, intuitive in the sense that we know that we're to worship on the first day of the week to remember the Lord's death. So say we're driving to services or riding a bus or walking, and we come across a terrible car accident. Intuitively, we should say, I need to help if somebody's life's, in, in, you know, threatened. Or, wait a minute, I'm supposed to go and worship, so I better go worship and just let them, you know. So I think so, in some cases, it should be obvious, like an animal falling into a ditch. Help the animal. Right. And to your point, yes, we have to be careful because we could find reasons to not worship if we really wanted to. So anyhow. True. Good points. Okay, I guess it's uh, your turn to ask me a question. Yeah, next question is found in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. So we kind of get the impression they say, hey, show us a sign from heaven, like you're the son of God, for instance. Exactly. And again, uh, the context of someone testing Jesus and not just testing, but trying to prove that he was not who he claimed to be, right? A prophet, son of God, etc. Uh, Jesus answers, again, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 2, answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, oh, it'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Quick side comment. That's probably based on your local uh, you know, weather phenomenon that they could, based on where the clouds were <laughs> with respect to the sun and time of day. Jesus goes on to say, hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, let's, let's sort of you know tease that apart a little bit. First of all, we need to recognize that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he had already performed countless Miracles, you know, by that point, starting all the way back, uh, basically uh, 14, eh, 12 chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, in fact, the uh, frequency of his miracles, uh, you know, was known throughout Judea, uh, as Peter declares on the day of Pentecost, you know, after Jesus was resurrected in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. 
where he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So, you know, these Pharisees and Sadducees had had, generally speaking, within the nation of Israel, had had numerous opportunities, you know, see and observe, you know, all these things. And yet it wasn't enough. You know, they wanted, I guess they wanted Jesus to be, you know, like a, a circus animal to, you know, perform on demand. Poof! You know, do something uh, directly for us. I think from that we can also get a lesson that, you know, even seeing miracles, which people did in the first century, was no guarantee that they would believe. A lot of it really depended on their attitude or how hard their heart was, which is a phrase we see uh, in several different places. You know, same situation that uh, Moses encountered in the book of Exodus, uh, initially dealing with the Israelites in Egypt, and certainly once they left Egypt. Deuteronomy uh, 9, verse 6, called them stiff-necked. Nehemiah, uh, chapter 9, much later, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, used the word hardened neck. In fact, let me just kind of uh, say that, uh, read that for a moment. You gave them bread from heaven. Of course, this is referring back to the wilderness wanderings. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage, which would be you know, return to bondage in Egypt. So, you know, basically Jesus in some ways is saying, you've had all these different opportunities, you know, wicked and adulterous, you know, seeking a sign, seeking a sign, seeking a sign. A sign given to them, the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that about? Well, basically, uh, the parallel passages talks about as Jonah was, you know, three days in the belly of the great fish. So the Son of Man will be, you know, three days in the earth, quote unquote, basically referring to his you know, death, his burial, and more importantly, his resurrection. Romans chapter one, verses three and four kind of speaks to that. Uh, beginning of verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In fact, John chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 21, after Jesus had cleansed the temple and run out the money changers, verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us? Since you do these things, Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. He was speaking of the temple of his own body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Three days in the belly of the great fish. Similar to, as you said, parallel with Jonah, three days uh, dead, buried, and resurrected. The ultimate sign that Jesus indeed was the Son of God. Brian, any comments? Yeah, good lessons. And I really like your emphasis on the first one, especially because you're right. I mean, they should have known through the miracles and 
through what was prophesied about Jesus. I mean, the Jews always love to point out passages from the old law to Jesus. That tells us that they certainly studied it, they were aware of what it said, but yet they didn't recognize that Jesus was whom was prophesied, as you pointed out, at a minimum through the miracles. And it just goes to show you when people harden their hearts, I mean, I'm thinking about also like Lazarus, Jesus raised him from the dead. They knew he raised him from the dead. Were they like, wow, this really confirms he's God's son? No, they tried to kill Lazarus again. So anyhow, it just shows how twisted our minds can become when we see the obvious truth, but yet we just reject it out of envy. Right. But, you know, as kind of a side comment, I'm, I'm reminded of some people that say, well, I will not believe unless I see a miracle. You know, let, let God you know, do something direct, miraculous, then I will believe. It's like, uh, so basically you want God to you know, conform to your think-sos or to do something, you know, personal, direct, obvious, you know, send you a special whatever, sign, angel, whatever. And it's, in some ways, it's, it goes back to attitude just not having the, the proper attitude of wanting to understand what truth is, dig into it, and being willing to accept it. Yeah, and how faith is such a critical part of that, right? Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please them anyhow. So yeah, completely agree. True. Well, and, you know, quick side comment. So, it, and it's not meant to be a blind faith, because, you know, you can look at historical evidence, for example, for Jesus, or you know, scientific evidence for creation, or you can look at the evidence that makes it reasonable to believe the Bible is indeed accurate and inspired. It's there. So there is evidence that you can build your faith upon, not meant to be a blind faith, but also not meant to be a obvious faith. I don't know if that's the right term or not. Anyway, we're getting, we're getting away from our original intent here. <laughs> yeah, no, but they all, they're all connected. I think if you're showing nothing else, right, it's all connected, but Okay, so you get the next question from Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And here we go again. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, that, in terms of our modern culture, that's, that's certainly timely. It is, and it's a valid question. And it's kind of like some of these others we were looking at, even though their intention was bad. It's a good question because we all need to know the answer to this question. So Jesus answers it, starting in verse 4. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that was his answer. And they, they have a follow-up question, which we'll come back to. But that was Jesus' answer to their question. So what are the lessons we can learn from that answer? Number one, marriage is intended to be lifelong. As Jesus said, right, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that tells us it's lifelong. In other words, do not get a divorce. So it's not about, hey, what are the reasons I can get a divorce? Jesus is saying, don't get a divorce. Find a way to resolve your differences. Keep the marriage together. And now we understand there are some circumstances that might make that difficult or even impossible. But the truth is, and we see this certainly in our world today, people get divorces for all kinds of reasons. Oh, we just don't get along. Or they made me mad or whatever it might be. And so what God's word really helps us to do is say, you know what, you can work out and should work out your differences, and keep that marriage together. So once again, that was his answer. Now, they had a follow-up question. 
They ask a second question where we can learn the lesson. It was never part of God's plan for man to divorce his wife. And I say that because Jesus, if you go on to verse 7, they first said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So it was never part of God's plan for a man to divorce his wife. As a matter of fact, in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. So once again, God wants a man and a woman to keep that marriage together. Now, Jesus does go on in verse 9 to say, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So the third lesson here is that there's only one reason someone can divorce their spouse, and that is for sexual immorality. In other words, having sex with someone other than their wife or husband. And so what's interesting here is that it also teaches us that if Jesus gave just one reason for divorce, then we can reasonably infer, if you will, that it eliminates all other reasons for divorce. And so, you know, Jeff, we see many people who try to introduce all kinds of exceptions and give all kinds of different reasons why they should be able to divorce their spouse. But Jesus made it clear there should be one man and one woman who are married for life with one exception, sexual immorality, as the only reason for divorce. Yeah, and unfortunately that runs pretty contrary to our modern society. Where, I mean, it's to the point where, quote-unquote, no-fault divorce. You don't even need a reason. Just say, yeah, we decided to go our separate ways, you know, based on civil civil court, uh, you know, legal, you know, governmental rules. But certainly not the way Jesus would have it. And the other thing I might mention is, you know, you have, in some ways, people say, well, that's just Jesus talking about the law of Moses to Jews of his day. And, you know, doesn't really have anything to do with Christians today. But look at the basis of the reason. You know, he goes all the way back to creation, which makes it basically timeless, not just limited to, you know, what we might call the law of Moses or or Judaism. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, even in civil society, there is an understanding of the value of giving some time before divorce is granted for a couple to try and reconcile. And I say that because in our state, at least I think it's still now, you can file for divorce, as you mentioned, no fault, right? You can file for any reason. However, there is a 90-day waiting period before they'll bring you before a judge to finalize that divorce. And the thought is because, and it tells you right in the documentation, they want to give you that 90-day period to A, make sure you really want to do this, B, to try and work it out so that you don't get a divorce. So even mankind, right, understands the value of keeping the marriage together. Very good point. All right. I guess I get the next question. Yeah, you get the next one. This one comes to us from Matthew chapter 22. And beginning in verse 23, it says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died, and after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Verse 26, likewise the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. 
They probably thought, well, we've got him in a quandary now. How's he going to answer this one, right? <laughs> True. And, of course, he does. Matt, uh, continuing on with verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham? God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So, you know, a couple different lessons we can get from that. One is, I'll just say, the nature of what I might call gotcha questions, you know, hype or hypothetical questions. You know, I'm reminded of the classic, you know, is God so powerful that he can create a rock that he can't lift, right? You know, just silly things like that. Who knows whether this was hypothetical or real? My, my suspicion is probably hypothetical. That probably stumped the Pharisees, which as a quick side comment, it's interesting because, you know, certainly within the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you know, there was some provision for polygamy, you know, one man, multiple wives. But for some reason, they stumbled over this concept of, uh, you know, one wife, multiple husbands in, you know, in the resurrection. Anyway, that's kind of, you know, a side comment. A main lesson we can get from it is marriage does not continue after death. Uh, you know, that's reinforced by Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Where it says, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. If the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. If her husband dies, she is free from that law, that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So, you know, marriage in this life, basically, you know, death, you know, terminates that bond, if you will. And something I might mention, again, as a little bit of a side comment, kind of uh, refutes, if you will, the doctrine, false doctrine that the Mormons have. I don't know if our listeners are aware of this, but basically within the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, also known as Mormonism, they have a concept of being married not only for time, you know, in this world, but also being married for eternity, sometimes called celestial marriage, sometimes called temple marriage, sometimes called being sealed that in this life, you can have your marriage be extended, if I could use that term, into the afterlife. And of course, that is directly contradicting what Jesus said in you know Matthew chapter 22, as well as what Romans chapter 7 says. Brian, any comments you might have? Yeah, you know, I like Jesus's answer here because it also makes us think, you know, when he says that we are like the angels of God in heaven, even more so, hey, what will this be like? And, you know, yes, we become so attached to our spouse and our family, for some people, their pets, you know, all of that, right? And they, and they just want it to be the same. But Jesus gives us some hints that, you know, it's it's going to be so different in heaven. You're, you're sort of missing the point that, yeah, you want to be with friends and fellow Christians, but it's not the same as it is on earth. And so... Once again, it's, it's it's helpful to us to frame that as to what it will be like. That's a good point because, you know, we're, we're talking not only about marriage in this life continuing on into the next life. And yes, indeed, sometimes we get questions from people out there saying, you know, will I still be married to my husband, etc. But also even in the resurrection, in, in the afterlife, in, in heaven, you know, there are no new marriages. 
which I think is kind of interesting, which suggests in our resurrection body that we get, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's not that concept of sexuality, if you will, and marriage and procreation and children, is there that we're used to here. So just sort of a small glimpse of what it might be. The other thing I just might mention real quick is part of Jesus' answer condemns their teaching that there is no resurrection. And it pivots on the tense of a verb. Jesus referring to Old Testament, I am God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God, and they're now dead, uh, but I am still, <laughs> which indicates they are still in existence, which based on our understanding of you know, Luke 16, they would be in Hades uh, in, a, in a conscious state, you know, awaiting the resurrection. So anyway, some other interesting little side lessons we can learn. Next one, Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 36, which follows immediately the previous question that the Sadducees have. So the Pharisees are going to take a, take a turn. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and here we go again, and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, the law of Moses would be our understanding. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because Jesus could have said, well, do you know what the old law says? You know, but anyhow, he quotes the old law. And beginning in verse 37, Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what's a lesson we can learn from his answer. Number one, God expects complete commitment. And in fact, as pointed out, Jesus was quoting the old law, and this was said on several occasions by Moses, for instance, to the Israelites as to what level of commitment God expected from them. And we see an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So we see that this has always been God's requirement, that we are fully committed. When you think about all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, that speaks of commitment, doesn't it? Now, Jeff, can I get you to read Luke chapter 9, where Jesus also talks about commitment, beginning in verse 57. So 57 through 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Oxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Yeah, and this is an interesting set of passages because in our human thinking, we might say, or our own selfish thinking, Boy, Jesus is sure being unsensitive. I mean, he's not letting them go back and bury their own dead or say goodbye and so forth. 
Now, Jesus was saying that he expects full commitment. If you're going to follow him, follow him. And that's really the lesson he was trying to teach them. And so we learn that from both of these passages in Luke chapter 9 and Deuteronomy 10. Now, another lesson that we can learn is that Jesus really wants us all to understand that it's equally important to love our neighbor. Notice he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why on these two commandments did all of the law and prophets hang? Now, think about it in these terms. When we are committed to God, we will treat other people with respect and with love and so forth. So our commitment to God is critical, and how we treat other people, we might say, is foundational to the Christian walk. So think of sins like murder or covetousness or envy or anger and how they show an absence of loving our neighbor. And if you think about it, and you look at all these different laws that were given, like under the law of Christ, they relate to our faithfulness to God or our faithfulness to our neighbor. And on another occasion, Jesus was asked a question, and he gave this same answer to another question about our commitment to God. And then he also expounds on, well, who is our neighbor? So let's look at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So Jeff, a very powerful lesson there about who is our neighbor. In essence, it's everyone, isn't it? And when we have an opportunity to do some good, help them, then we need to treat them with love. Agreed. Well, and it's also interesting, and again, coming back to this concept of, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, being written at a time when the law of Moses was active. And yet... A great deal of it is still applicable to Christians today. Again, you have a, you know, a Jewish person asking another Jewish person, what's the greatest commandment of the law of Moses? And we hear the answer that you provided a few moments ago. And yet we see that is you know, not just limited to law of Moses, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but is uh, universally applicable uh, to us as well today. There is and definitely something we need to keep in mind. Well, and the other thing I'll just you know, throw out there for whatever it's worth is, can you imagine if we somehow could live in a world 
that put both of those into practice, you know, particularly, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm reminded of, of the other passage, I think it's in Matthew 7, the, the golden rule. You know, what's, however you would want people to treat you, treat them. Can you imagine what kind of a world we would live in? And I guess in, in some ways it would be <laughs> what we would expect to uh, experience in uh, heaven, right? You know, heaven on earth, but not something we will see today. Yeah, and it's much like family, right? You, you feel the benefits of love and care and consideration. And it should just be logical to people that that's such a better way than hate and violence and vitriol and anyways. <laughs> Very true. So the next question for you, Jeff, comes from Mark chapter 7. And beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples, speaking of Jesus' disciples, eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And of course, Jesus goes on in the next verse to answer and say to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, something I've given to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside that can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile him. Anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, so kind of a lengthy answer, sort of a tease it apart. And in essence, Jesus kind of gives us further details further down in verse 17. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, Wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and defile the man. So basically, we have the primary question about 
know, how come your disciples don't ceremonially wash their hands after being out amongst the public? And Jesus said, yeah, that's just one of your own traditions. Has really nothing to do with being ceremonial or with being uh, defiled or unclean. What really makes you unclean is your attitude and your words and your actions, what your heart has, things that come out from you, from your uh, spirit, your attitude, etc. But Brian, more fundamentally there, I think we've got another lesson that warns us about keeping to traditions, traditions of men, traditions that the church has established, etc., and not going back to the scriptures. Because, you know, if we do hold to the traditions and the commandments of men, that renders our worship of God vain, uh, Mark 7, 7. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, it's kind of interesting that, you know, we're talking about, you know, Pharisees, Jews, etc., probably indeed worshiping God according to, you know, Old Testament covenant, observing the Sabbath, and many other such commandments of God, but they've mixed into the commandments of God their own commandments and their own traditions. And as a result, their worship as a whole is vain, pointless. And in fact, not only you know adding to things, but also using those traditions to contradict what the, in their particular case, uh, the law required. You know, the, 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 the quick side discussion that he had about uh, Corbin. You know, basically the, the Pharisees taught that, well, you know, yeah, you're supposed to take care of your mother and father, but, you know, if you had promised to give some money or possessions to God, that you can say, well, yes, I've, I was going to help, you know, yeah, mom and dad, yeah, I was going to help you with something, you know, some money or, you know, food, clothing, shelter, whatever, but I've already promised that to God. So, sorry. You're, you're out of luck. Jesus said, wrong. <laughs> That's, you know, you can't use one, you can't use your own tradition to uh, counteract or uh, contradict the commandment of God. So that's that's kind of embedded in there as well. And I guess, Brian, a, a lesson for us today in terms of religious denominations and religious traditions and quote unquote, the traditions of the church, be careful if it's not grounded in the scripture, your worship is vain. Yeah, I, I like those two lessons a lot because, you know, we do tend to focus on the physical. All of us can. In fact, you know, you think about, well, do we, all of us wash our hands before we eat today? Yeah, we do, right? For sanitary reasons and so forth. But as you pointed out, you know, the Pharisees tended to take these traditions and made them spiritual so that if you didn't do it, something was wrong with you, right? And as Jesus and you pointed out, right, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So we just have to be very careful. You know, Jesus teaches us his valuable lesson. It's what comes out of us. It's spiritually how we act is what's critical here. Not some tradition that man makes that we then turn into doctrine when we don't have the authority to do so. Right. Well, and in this particular case, the traditions were in some ways more, well, at least in some cases, more restrictive. In this particular example, oh, you must wash your hands. And you can probably find religious denominations today that say, well, you know, to be truly righteous to God, you need to do A and B and C and D. And it's like, well, you have a scripture for that? Well, no, that's just what you need to do. It's like, sorry, you know, you, you are binding where God has not bound. 
Yeah, and really, that's, I guess, a, a third lesson we could say, as you pointed out when it came to this core band. You know, there will be times in our lives where we will have two different commandments that we need to keep. One, give to the Lord. Two, help our parents. And I think Jesus rightly pointed out, you, you have to have, I guess you might say, the wherewithal to understand what's more important. You know, certainly helping your parents. And I'm not saying that giving to God isn't important, but you have to be able to make that distinction. And, and they were just completely opposite. Oh, got to give it to God. Sorry, mom and dad can't help you. Jesus is probably like <laughs> scratching his head like, are, are you serious? You're not going to help your parents? Anyways, we have to make those distinctions at times. Yeah, indeed. And of course, trying to, you know, obey all, all the commandments uh, and not only commandments, but, you know, approved you know, apostolic examples and necessary inferences, you know, from the, from the New Testament whenever we can. All right, so Brian, looks like you get the next one, Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. The disciples were given certain gifts, and so you can see how that could go to their heads, so to speak. And, you know, they were probably impressed with what they were able to do. And so, you know, they asked this question. In fact, we see that it was asked on more than one occasion in different settings. And so here, Jesus continues on in verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So what are a couple lessons we can learn? One, we should not seek to be quote-unquote great as this is a reflection of pride. And, you know, it's a common characteristic we see today. But it's really a common characteristic that man has had throughout ages. You know, you go back to when people fought wars and they were mighty and, and they, you know, conquered people and all of these different things. Mankind has always had this tendency to want to just be greater than others and make sure everybody knew about it. Well, that's pride. Instead, you know, we should have the attitude of David. As we see in Psalm 131 and verse 1, he says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. So David was humble. He was focused on doing the Lord's will. And as he said himself, and the you know, Holy Spirit's confirming here that God agreed that his heart was not haughty, nor his eyes lofty. The second lesson we can learn is, you know, greatness comes through service and humility. And so Jesus, on another occasion, tells us in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 27, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So, Jeff, really simple lesson here, right? Deny pride, put on humility, have the same mind that Jesus did, and that is of service. Yeah, and you mentioned there were a couple of different occasions when the disciples were doing that. Mark 9.33 gives insight into one of those. Let me just quote it real quick. When he, Jesus, came to Copernicum, and being in the house, he asked them, his disciples, what was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way, as we were journeying? But they held their peace, for they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. <laughs> 
And, you know, Brian, I think there's kind of a, a potential lesson as well for us today, especially for those in leadership positions, you know, within local congregations, various terms like elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, that of a service, uh, that they're in that position not to be served, not to lord it over the flock of the local congregation, not to be stuck up, but to be in a, a position of, of service to others. And, you know, by extension, you could probably apply that to preachers as well, Bible teachers, etc. that in any sort of, you know, leadership position like that, you have to be careful not to let it, quote unquote, go to your head, but that an attitude of being a servant leader, and we have that term today in, in the business world, servant leadership, needs to, uh, you know, be first and foremost and not have an ego, so to speak. Yeah, and it's interesting how, I can't remember if it's the one that you just referenced or on another occasion where once again, they were wondering who was going to be the greatest. Jesus talked about how among the Gentiles, right, among the world, they lorded over you, he mentioned. And that can be the tendency, whether it's in the church or just in society in general. If, you know, you have some people that are put in charge, they're just overbearing, they're harsh. And Jesus says, that's not what you should desire, right, that, because there's another thing that can happen. So. Uh, some good lessons there. Yeah, I think that'd be Matthew. Uh, looked it up real quickly. Uh, Matthew 20, roughly verse 25, uh, give it or take. You know, the other thing I'll just mention real quick is, is, and and maybe it's just more of a visual thing. Some people in religious positions love the titles. You know, Pastor Joe or Reverend John, etc. Or they like the the robes. You know, the special vestments, instead of sort of elevate them above the laity, above the common people, you know, as the clergy. And again, you know, something else that we need to be on, on watch for, you know, lest we, you know, the, the way, the way we sort of, you know, dress or act or titles sort of elevate us above, make us, you know, extra special than the rest of the people in the congregation. Some eat that up, don't they? <laughs> Well, in fact, even even Jesus warned about uh, you, know, you know religious titles. You know, don't use religious titles. You know, whether you're you know you know father or rabbi or priest or reverend or right reverend or very right reverend, etc. Yeah, and he said, "Call no man on earth your father." Right. So don't show them that respect that you would because we have one Father in heaven. Yep, exactly right. All right, you get the last question, Jeff, that Jesus answers for us, and it's found in Luke chapter 8, and it begins in verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke a parable, or spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And of course, he goes on to explain it, starting in verse 11. Now the parable is this. And it's almost like, you know, parallel things... A parable, things in parallel, one thing compared to another. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, 
And the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. On the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these, but these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand, that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even that which he seems to have, will be taken from him. So we have, you know, the parable. We have the explanation of the parable. But in addition, Brian, I think there's some lessons that we can easily learn from the parable. For example, for, you know, easy, different kinds of people, different kinds of people, different kinds of hearts. And so when they're exposed to, you know, the gospel, several different things can happen depending on the person, as illustrated in, in the four classes of soil in the parable. Second thing, people may not be, not be willing to admit it, but this parable teaches the possibility of falling away, which many religious groups deny, uh, you know, under the canopy of, you know, once saved, always saved or, you know, eternal security, well, not true, because at least two of the classes received the word and started, you know, that, that seed germinated, etc. but for various reasons had problems. You know, uh, the uh, seed uh, by the, uh, on the rock, a rocky, rocky soil, uh, you know, plants withered away. In time of temptation, they, quote-unquote, fall away. Likewise, those fell among thorns, cares, riches, pleasures of life, etc. Well, that's another lesson we can get. The other, and perhaps the biggest lesson is, you know, we need to make sure our own hearts have the right kind of um, attitude, if you will, to allow God's word to germinate or grow in our hearts and grow to maturity, produce good fruit, be faithful, etc to keep and bear fruit with patience. So lots of good lessons here. Brian, did you have any others? Well, you know, I was thinking about this expression we've seen a few times as we've gone through the answers Jesus has given, where he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, in, in this verse 8, Luke 8, 8, it says he had cried out, right? And so, I, you know, just dawned on me, because we've seen it a couple times now, that there's a lesson there, right, where Jesus is saying, look, I, the truth I'm giving you is important. Listen to what I'm saying, right? And so I love how he said that on several occasions, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Give special attention. Listen to what I'm teaching you. And, oh, by the way, apply it, right? <laughs> so anyhow. Well, you know, that's a good point because, and I can't remember the verse, but I think the disciples ask him, how come you're teaching the multitudes in parables? You know, these really weird sayings or situations, etc. And basically, the parables were almost had like a twofold 
and kind of contradictory purpose, if I can say it that way. One was to say, hey, you can recognize sores and seed and different types of ground and how the how the seed you know responds with the ground, etc. That's like a spiritual thing. Okay, so I'll tell you the physical thing, and then you can kind of say, oh, okay, so spiritually, yeah, okay, I, I got the message, you know, got got the concept. So in some ways, parables were meant to sort of clarify or reveal, and yet at the same time, sometimes parables were meant to conceal, because if a person in the audience you really didn't have a good attitude, for example. It's like, wow, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, that's, that's just that's just nonsense. Oh, well, well, sure. Yeah, we understand sores, you know, grow seed. Okay, fine. What's the big deal, right? And and basically the, the parable or the deeper meaning of the parable is lost on the person in some ways because they don't have a good attitude. So they're to, to conceal and to reveal at the same time. Yeah, I like that. Appreciate you bringing out that distinction. And, you know, I read an article within this last week about how we all learn. Like, what's the best method of teaching that helps us learn? And one thing that the article talked about, in fact, it said overwhelmingly, it's stories. People tend to remember stories, or as you mentioned, in this case, parables. And Jesus taught on many occasions by using examples, like you say, when farmers, you know, hey, they could relate to planting crops. And so, you know, it just goes to show you that, yeah, that resonates with us. And now it's a matter of us being honest with ourselves and saying, look, I, I need to change or I need to apply this principle to my life and then doing so. So always appreciated the method that Jesus used to teach and get his point across. Right. And, and while you're talking, I looked it up. It's uh, Matthew 13, or at least one occasion, Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And there's another question of Jesus. Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Whoever has, and I'm sure this is like a degree of understanding, whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even that which he has will be taken away from them. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand for in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For, verse 15, I think is pivotal, Brian, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their eyes are hard, or their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So there you go, Brian. Uh, a bonus question for our listeners. And and don't confuse me with the facts kind of mentality, right? So anyways, uh, yeah, Pharisees were certainly guilty of being dull of hearing. And the good news is the way the gospel is structured for us today, if we'll just open our hearts and let God teach us, uh, the gospel can be understood. And I think we're seeing that with a lot of the questions and answers today. So Jeff, we've gone through kind of a different method today, right? Where we looked at questions that Jesus asked, the answers that Jesus gave. And then, you know, in some cases like that one that you read, he told us, he explained the answer or the lesson to be learned to his disciples. But for others, we hope that some of the lessons that we brought resonated. And I'm sure our listeners have some of their own lessons that they learned from what we read. But let me give you a chance to share your final thoughts before I point folks back to the website. Uh, and certainly we appreciate Jesus as the as the master teacher. 
and being the ultimate source of, of all knowledge, uh, per se, and willingness to provide that knowledge, pass that knowledge on to us, you know, in, in response to, you know, uh, questioning. And certainly I would, you know, encourage our, our listeners to, you know, continue that thought or continue that action with our, at least our own in, in a humble way, uh, website capability, you know, submit a question and we'll try to give you a response, you know, again, based on scripture, sometimes referencing articles at our website uh, that contain scripture references as well. But uh, yeah, Brian, just kind of to go all the way back to the very beginning, uh, 200 podcasts in, I very much uh, appreciate, you know, all of your efforts to, you know, kind of organize uh, all this material and bring topics uh, to our, our listening audience. And certainly uh, thankful for our listeners who, who have come with us on the journey so far, you know, looking forward to potentially another 200, you know, who knows what the future holds, but uh, certainly has value and we'll continue, uh, continue down this path, you know, Lord willing. Yeah, I agree. And I'll echo what you said. I appreciate all your efforts. And as you also said, Jesus is the master teacher. And so Jeff and I are humbled to have the opportunity to just bring you some lessons from God's word that certainly have helped us over the years and hopefully have been beneficial to you as well. And as Jeff also mentioned, you know, we would encourage you to utilize our website where over the years we've answered a thousand plus Bible questions that people have answered or submitted, I should say. And a lot of those questions you can find the answers to on our website, along with supporting articles, books that have been written, for instance, by our evangelist, Alan Hitchin. Uh, we record the sermons that are preached at our congregation and even the classes that Alan teaches. So there's just a lot of material as it relates to today's subjects that we looked at. If you go to our website, biblequestions.org, there's an alphabetical index on the front page, or you can choose the topics menu header, if you will. And you also have an alphabetical index where you can go and find the letter H, where you'll have more information about humility, J for Jesus and John the Baptist, L for love, M for miracles, O for obedience, P for parables, and T for tradition. So it kind of shows you the wide range of topics that we were able to cover. So please take a look at this and apply these principles to your life. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.